0: O Lord, you are light, and so we ask that you would shine your light on your word, so that we may see you there. Show us yourself and satisfy us. O Lord, by your Spirit, open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things in your law. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. So it's Habakkuk 2 and verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that the herald may run with it for the revelation awaits an appointed time it speaks of the end and will prove will not prove false though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. See the enemy is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faith indeed. Wine betrays him and he is arrogant and never at rest because he is greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives of all the people. Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Will not your creditors suddenly arise Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. Because you have plundered many nations, all the peoples who are left will plunder you, for you have shed human blood. You have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people labor, people's labour is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? For the earth is filled with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. You will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it's your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's hand is coming round to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Of what value is an idol carved by craftsmen or an image that teaches lies? For the one who makes its trust is his own creation, he makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver, there is no breath in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Amen. Now, as you know, um, Habakkuk is part of a section of the Old Testament that is known as the Minor Prophets. Um, but please don't be fooled by um, that name, um, that he's located there in the minor prophets, uh, he's located there not because his message is unimportant, but he's located there because in comparison with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, the the three big hitters of Old Testament prophecy, the so-called major prophets, because they're very long uh, in 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 their uh, in, in their writing, Habakkuk is short. Um, but while Habakkuk is short. Um, he's also quirky. And Habakkuk's particular quirk is this that most of the minor prophets, with the exception of Jonah, in them the prophet speaks to the people from God. However, Habakkuk is the other way around. He speaks from the people to God. The other minor prophets, apart from Jonah, speak. For God, if you like, to the people, but Habakkuk speaks for the people to God, and and Habakkuk is doing what many people do when they speak about God, and even to God, uh, he's he's making a complaint about God. Um, it's not part of the original text, and um, but the NIV has the the herrings. Um, and they both label it labels Habakkuk 's prayer and um, complaints his first complaint and his second complaint and we uh, remember what he's been complaining about um, two issues that that really bug us um quite a lot first of all god's apparent inactivity and then god 's unexpected activity. Uh, you remember how, as he looks around to the moral breakdown of society and the total mess in the church, Habakkuk complains to God about God's apparent inactivity. This is chapter 1 verses 2 to 4. Why is God apparently sitting on his hands and not doing something about all that's happening? However, God's reply to Habakkuk's original complaint in verses 5 to 11 of chapter 1 causes Habakkuk then to complain about a different thing, to now complain about God's unexpected activity. That's chapter 1, verse 12 to chapter 2, verse 1. And God's reply to him, you remember, was that he was doing something. He's in the process of bringing about the rise of Babylon uh, to the position of number one superpower in the Middle East so that he might use the Babylonians as instruments of his judgment on the people for their covenant unfaithfulness. faithfulness. Now God's answer not only took Habakkuk completely by surprise, but it raised more questions than it seems to answer. At first Habakkuk did not un- understand what God was not doing, but now he doesn't understand what God is doing. He says, yes, God, your people are bad, but they're nowhere near as bad as the Babylonians. So he complains again to God about God. How could God, a God whose eyes are too pure to look on evil, who cannot tolerate wrong, how could he use the atrocities and the barbarity of this extremely wicked nation of the Babylonians to punish the sins of the only mildly wicked uh, uh, people of Judah? And folks, haven't we sat where Habakkuk has sat? Haven't we thought what Habakkuk has thought? We look around us at the world and we see how wickedness and ungodliness are rampant, often at the expense of God's people. And we say, well, why is God not doing something about it? Uh, Sometimes we even give expressions to our thoughts and complain to God about God's apparent inactivity. And sometimes as we reflect, about what is going on in our own lives we do the same why is God allowing me to face these challenges and difficulties when my neighbours who have no time for Jesus seem to have such an easy time and we said look Lord I try to follow Jesus but why is life so hard most of the time sometimes even Christians as Christians we do wonder whether it's worthwhile following Jesus at all Sometimes we even give expressions to our thoughts and complain to God about his unexpected activity, so folks, because we've all sat where Habakkuk uh, is sitting and thought what Habakkuk has thought, we need to um, need to learn the lessons and listen carefully to Habakkuk two verses two to ten, because in it you come across um four Assurances that God gives to us when we're perplexed about God's apparent inactivity and puzzled by God's unexpected activity. They bring to us some light at the end of a very long tunnel at times. So what are these four assurances which help the perplexed and puzzled to get some light at the end of the tunnel? Well the first one is at the end of uh, verse uh, 4 in the statement the righteous will, uh, the righteous will live by his faith." and it's the assurance of the strength of the cross, the assurance of the strength of the cross. Now, where's the cross in that statement? Well, we need to think back to a couple of Sundays ago when we we looked at that verse, and we remember how the New Testament apostles interpreted this statement as being all about how God puts us right with himself on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. Uh, They see this uh, most important statement as speaking about how at the cross a great exchange took place. And let me remind you of it, that our sin was transferred to Jesus and he was punished for it and Jesus' perfect righteousness was transferred to us. So now we have the positive uh, righteousness that we need to be in a right relationship with God. And the New Testament apostles see that statement at the end of verse uh, 4, Habakkuk 2 verse 4, the righteous will live by his faith as being focused on the cross And what Jesus achieved by his death on the cross. Now why do we need to listen carefully to this assurance of the strength of the cross when we're puzzled and perplexed? Why do we need to focus on Jesus' death on the cross when we don't understand God's apparent inactivity or God's unexpected activity? Well a number of reasons. First of all because the cross reminds us of God's love cross reminds us of God's love. Often when we think God is not doing anything, we wonder if God is a God of love at all. Surely we think to ourselves if he's loving, he would step in immediately and sort things out. And often when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives, Satan appears and he stirs things up and he insinuates that if God really loved us, well, he wouldn't allow all this to happen to us. But the cross underlines to us that God does love us. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates, proves his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the great historical witness to God's love. Our feelings and circumstances can't alter that fact in the slightest. And so over and against anything that we might think or feel the cross reminds us that no matter what is going on or not going on in our lives, God really does love us. And we need to focus on the cross too because the cross brings us peace. Um, There's an old hymn that um, my mum taught me uh, many years ago and there's a line in it that goes like this, peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin. The blood of Jesus whispers peace within. And Jesus in John 14 verse 27 says this, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And and when did Jesus say that? When everything was going well? When everything was trouble free and pain free? No, we, we know that Jesus spoke those words just hours before his death. At the shadow of the cross, um, hung increasingly ominously over his life you see the peace that Jesus gives us is a peace in the midst of suffering and pain and perplexity and puzzlement and challenging circumstances we think a peace is the absence of all these things but in the bible no it's not it's peace in these circumstances uh, it's as if um, and it's often a when we're going through these difficult times, that Jesus gives us the peace that the cross brings in a special way. Very often I've spoken to people who've gone through traumatic experiences and they've said to me, Roger, it's funny, sometimes during this experience I have known Jesus' peace and presence in a way that I've never known it before. Because the cross brings peace. And the cross also announces to us That evil has been defeated. You remember when Jesus died. uh, Jesus conquered. Finished was his victory cry. Evil people might have their fling. But they can't win. They might rage. But they'll lose. Evil's fate was settled on the hill of the skull. When Jesus uh, crushed it. And uh, we had that this morning in Psalm 2. Where we had all these nations and rulers and people trying to go against God and, and against Jesus and his, the Lord's anointed and God rebukes them and says I've installed Jesus as king and uh, evil has been defeated yes we have questions yes we're perplexed and puzzled but God comes to us and through his word he assures us of the strength of the cross there's light at the end of the tunnel so don't despair And here's a second assurance that will help us when we're perplexed and puzzled and give us some light at the end of a dark tunnel. It's uh, in verses 6 to 13 and 19 to 15. It's the assurance of the inevitability of God's judgment. Now these verses um, which focus on how God will judge and punish evil people for their wickedness They're known technically as a taunt song. Now, I was trying to think of an example of a taunt song and uh, I think I came across one that happened last weekend when um, Liverpool absolutely thumped Man United 7-0. And the Liverpool supporters sang 7-0, 7-0, 7-0. Of course, the Man United... uh, Supporters knew it was 7-0, they they, they can't count up to 10. uh, But it was just the Liverpool supporters taunting the Man United supporters um, about it. And and that's an example of a taunt song. Now, Habakkuk's taunt song is a bit longer and it's a bit more sophisticated than the ones chanted by football supporters. It's made up of five stanzas and you'll notice there that each one of them begins with the word woe. And woe in the Bible is the opposite of blessed it's a curse, and each woe beginning stanza highlights a sin the Babylonians are committing uh, for which they will be judged and punished by god they, they'll be punished for their sin of greed, uh, verses six to eight that's what th- these verses are all about woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion the Babylonians were acting like a thieving moneylender who steals from some and exploits the misfortunes of others by taking valuable items in pledge for tiny loans. And God will judge the Babylonians and punish them for the sin of injustice. That's verses 9 to 11. Woe to him who builds his realm on unjust gain. And God will judge and punish the Babylonians for the sin of violence. You bump into that in verses 12 and 13. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by crime. And God God will judge and punish the Babylonians for the sin of debauchery. You come across that in verses 15 to 17. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbour so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. This is not simply getting people drunk so that they lose all self-control and dignity. This is doing so for sexual gratification. And God will judge and punish the Babylonians for the sin of idolatry. That's what verses 18 and 19 are highlighting. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. So these are the five sins of which the Babylonians are guilty and for which God will judge and punish them greed, injustice, violence, debauchery and idolatry and I think that there are quite a few states and rulers in our world today who if they did read those verses should be afraid and very afraid now let me point out to you that this taunt song was not for the benefit of the Babylonians. The Babylonians were hundreds of miles away and they wouldn't have heard it. And even if they had heard it, they would have laughed. This taunt song is sung for the benefit of God's people. It's designed to encourage them because it reminded them of the inevitability of God's judgment. Uh, Here's how one commentator puts it. The prophet had Wondered how a holy God could see an unholy nation, uh, could use an unholy nation to judge a less evil people. He now knows that the answer to that problem, the instrument of judgment, would inevitably become the object of judgment. See that this taunt song turns out to be the answer to Habakkuk's second complaint. God will judge. Habakkuk is a bit like us he would have liked God to judge it immediately if not sooner but God says no it will happen and that means that we have questions and we're puzzled and perplexed and today we're surrounded by idolaters who who worship themselves and their own achievements and their own very twisted view of what's right and wrong and although they tell people how tolerant they are they're actually not very tolerant at all they're committed to building up their own cause by destroying anyone who opposes them cancelling them to the term injustice exploitation violence are the tools of their trade and god says to these people woe. and although it doesn't appear to be so one day they will face his judgment and God comes to us and through his word assures us of the inevitability of his judgment so there's light at the end of the tunnel. We mustn't despair. Here's another assurance that helps perplexed and puzzled people to see light at the end of the tunnel. It's in, it's in verse 14 in the affirmation the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's the assurance of the triumph of God's purposes um, I'm sure you notice the contrast there between verses 12 and 13 and verse 14. In verses 12 and 13, uh, we come across the Babylonian plan to use violence and barbaric cruelty and terror to construct an empire that would control the earth as it was known at that time. And then in verse 14, we come across God's plan to fill the whole earth. With his glory. Now, pretend that you don't know how things pan out, and let me ask you this: Which plan is going to succeed—the Babylonian plan or God's plan? And in a sense, that question answers itself. It's a no-brainer. So there's no prizes uh, if we say God's plan is going to succeed. God says the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. There's no ifs and buts about it. God's purposes will triumph. And more than that, God tells Habakkuk that he will even use the extremely wicked Babylonians to bring about the triumph of his purposes. God is so sovereign in the world that he even uses the wrath of men to praise him, the sins of wicked people to bring about his purposes and he doesn't, he's not contaminated by their sin or evil deeds, but he uses them. He's in sole control uh, of, the, of, of, of things. And supremely, we see the triumph of God's purposes in Jesus' death and resurrection. Uh, repeatedly the Bible highlights uh, how what God did in Jesus' resurrection overturned the plans. Of God's enemy, of Jesus' enemies, uh, the, the, the Jewish religious leaders. Think about it. Um, Mark fourteen one and 2 tells us that although they wanted Jesus eliminated, the Jewish religious leaders did not want him killed at Passover time. But God's eternal plan was that Jesus should die at Passover time as the Lamb of God who fulfills all the Passover symbolism, John twenty nine Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And guess when Jesus died? Correct, he died at Passover time. The triumph of God's purposes. God's eternal plan that was that Jesus should die under God's curse by being hung on a cross. Uh, Galatians 3.13, uh, quoting Deuteronomy, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now the Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious court you remember, had sentenced Jesus to death for the crime of blasphemy. And stoning was the usual way in which they dealt with blasphemers. However, it was only the, uh, uh, the occupying Roman military authorities who could execute people. So someone whom they wanted to die had to be killed the way the Romans wanted. And the Romans' preferred method of killing was crucifixion. So Jesus died by being hung on a cross rather than being stoned. It was the triumph of God's purposes. And even when Jesus was uh, buried in Joseph of Arimathea's uh, cave tomb, the Jewish religious leaders feared a bit of grave robbing shenanigans on part of his disciples. So you remember that they got Pilate to seal up the entrance of the tomb and to mount a guard to stop a resurrection being stage managed by his disciples. But God's eternal plan was that Jesus would rise from the dead. Psalm 16 verse 9, we sang that he he wouldn't allow his Holy One to see corruption. That was God's eternal plan. And guess what happened? Jesus was raised from the dead. It was the triumph of God's purposes and, and, and what a word of assurance that is to us when we're puzzled and perplexed. God's purposes cannot be thwarted. And even if God does permit evil to have its fling, it's not his final word. God's plan is that good will overcome evil and his purpose will triumph. Yes, we've questions. Yes, we're often puzzled and perplexed. But God comes to us and through his word, he reassures us of the triumph of his purposes so that there's light at the end of the tunnel and we need not despair. And then there's one final assurance that will help us when we're puzzled and perplexed to have some light at the end of the tunnel. It's found in verse 20 and it's the announcement that the Lord is in his holy temple so let the earth be silent before him. It's the the, the assurance of of God's control. Now, uh, the temple that Habakkuk is talking about here is not the physical one in Jerusalem, the one he could see with his own physical eyes. The temple he's talking about was God's heavenly temple that could only be seen with spiritual eyes. Sometimes... You'll find in the Old Testament when they talk about the temple, um, it'll be used in, in one of two ways. The temple will be seen sometimes as the dwelling place of God, that, that, that God is there. But so, sometimes the, the temple and the Ark of the Covenant in the temple is referred as God's footstool. So if you think about it, it's his footstool here on earth and God is in his heavenly temple in heaven. And I think that's how Habakkuk is looking at it here. It's God uh, on his throne in the heavenly temple. Um, It's the eternal dwelling place of the great God of all the earth. And, And in that heavenly temple, God reigns from his throne, blessing his people and issuing his commands and dispensing his justice and dealing with his enemies. God, The God who rules from his holy temple is the sovereign Lord who is in complete and absolute control of everything and anyone. And so as he looks beyond what he can see with his physical eyes to what he can see with his spiritual eyes, Habakkuk begins to get answers to his question and begins to move forward in his journey from fear to faith. And the same thing happens with us it's the assurance of God's control that calms our fears and causes trust to replace complaining and questioning it is God the sovereign Lord who rules and not even even people so the evil people so there's no need for us to be afraid it is God the sovereign Lord who will judge wicked people for their wicked acts so there's no need for us to panic It is God, the Sovereign Lord, who will do the right thing and do what he pleases so that there's no need for us to complain or question. It is God, the Sovereign Lord, who will work out his glorious purpose no matter matter what evil people might do. So there's no need to doubt. Yes, we're perplexed. Yes, we're puzzled. But God comes to us and through his word assures us of the certainty of his control there's light at the end of the tunnel. So do not despair. Now let me take you back to the key verse in this section of Habakkuk. It's verse 4 again. Back to verse 4. And the, the whole verse. See, God says, this is what God says. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by his faith. Now, sports reporters sorry to use a football or rugby illustration here sports reporters when they're reporting in a football match or a rugby match will often talk about a game of two halves and what they mean by that is that the second half was completely different from the first half in the first half one team was in control but in the second half the other team was in control now Habakkuk 2 verse 4 is a verse of two halves. The first half of the verse, see he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, speaks about the way of unbelief. It's a path that's characterized by sin and in particular the sins of greed and injustice and violence and debauchery and idolatry. The second half of the verse But the righteous will live by his faith, speaks of the way of faith. It's a path that's characterized by trust in God, and in particular, the assurance of the strength of the cross, the assurance of the inevitability of God's judgment, the assurance of the triumph of God's purposes, and the assurance of the certainty of God's control. And the challenge of Habakkuk 2, verse 4, (coughs) is really simple. When we are perplexed by God's apparent inactivity and when we're puzzled by God's unexpected activity, which of the two paths are we going to travel? We sometimes think that trust in God and faith in God is only something that's there at the start of our Christian lives, but that's not true Every day we are to live by faith. And faith is this challenge, this choice we make all the time, every day, every moment of the day, every situation we find ourselves in. Are we going to travel along the path of sight, unbelief? Or are we going to travel along the way of faith, of what we know is true spiritually. Now we, we can take the easy option. And travel along the way of unbelief. And so we end up ranting and raving against God. And we complain about how he's treated us. And we question God's goodness and love and ability. And we, <coughs> when we do that. We'll find ourselves in the company of plenty of people. Fellow travellers who support all our prejudices against God. Uh, but... We need to heed the warning of the Bible that those who travel along this path they'll find themselves increasingly eaten up by bitterness and resentment towards God and they'll find themselves getting further and further away from God until they end up on belief's ultimate destination which is hell itself. That's one option. Or we can take the tough option and that's travel along the way of faith. Yes, we'll, we'll not understand what's going on. Yes, we'll often be perplexed and puzzled. Yes, there'll not be many people heading along that way. But we, we keep on trusting in God and his promises. And we do so often in spite of our feelings and in spite of our circumstances. We, we trust in the, in, as Luther put it, the, the, the naked word of God. God has said it. I will trust in it. That's the way of faith and we keep on doing that day after day and year after year until we reach faith's ultimate destination which is the glory and joys and rest of heaven itself. And the question, the choice that faces us all the time is which path are we going to travel along? Are we going to travel by faith? Are we going to travel by physical sight on the basis of our experience and feelings and circumstances and head along the way of unbelief? Or are we going to live by spiritual sight on the basis of God's promises in his word and head along the way of faith? That's a choice that faces us all the time until when we say, how long O Lord, will that choice go on? Well, till we see God's face. And we share his glory in heaven. And when we think that's where where things are going. We ask another question. How long is it going to be Lord Jesus till you return? And we see you. And we don't have to live by faith anymore. But we live by sight because we see you. Let's pray for a moment. Sovereign Lord in times like these we need to hear your assuring us of the strength of the cross and the inevitability of your judgment the triumph of your purposes and the certainty of your control and we bless you that you give us these assurances in your word so help us to live on the basis of your promises and not on the basis of our experience and our feelings grant us grace especially when life is difficult and we we don't understand and cannot work out everything to our own satisfaction to refuse to live by sight and to reject the way of unbelief. Instead, may we have grace to travel daily along the way of faith and hear our prayer until that day our faith will be replaced by sight and we will see you and when we won't be puzzled anymore, we won't complain anymore, we'll discover that you have done all things well to your glory and praise. So hear us as we live for you. And as we seek to serve you and to walk the path of faith day by day, give us the strength to live on the promises of your word. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.